Thanks, thanks for having us back again. Uh, today, uh, we, we thought to reverse the order. Okay, why is that? Uh, peculiar choice. Okay, uh, the reason we decided to reverse the order, I mean, is, is it, it seems like some of the philosophy, you know, the philosophy, philosophical ideas kind of seem to jar your heads and, 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 and kind of walk out of here a little discombobulated. Oh, it's kind of intriguing. But, you know, we're worried about you getting in a car wreck on the way home. So what we thought we would do is instead introduce our, our, our discussion tonight, our, our lecture, by way of the philosophical component. Okay, and that will kind of, in some ways, get you kind of a little off balance, and then Mr. McGuire will knock you down, you know, with, with, with kind of the historical facts. And therefore, you'll leave here with something very concrete that you can sink your teeth into, and maybe a little bit of an understanding about why history unfolded as it did, okay? Because remember, okay, the history of ideas and human history are related. And often, the history, history as we know it, follows upon a history of ideas. Okay? Sometimes certain ideas take time to become incarnated in human history. And I think we see that in this case. So we're going to begin then with some of the philosophical background okay, uh, that, that, that can explain something of what Martin Luther did. And then we can look at the facts, look at how this was manifested in his person in human history. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Now, we are going to leave the theme we began with, that we discussed again on Tuesday, or last Tuesday, and, 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 and address something else. Now, I have to admit here, it's, it's kind of an inherent frustration here as I begin, uh, that I want to give you so much, okay? But we have so little time. So we have to, and this is the nature of life, sometimes begin midstream, okay? And, and, and you just have to take my word, you know, that the stream is up there, it has a source, it has causes, but I can't introduce them all to you in one city. So let's then take up our analysis uh, by starting at, at, at an interesting point, a point of the Reformation itself. And I'm going to read to you, and, and those of you who read the, the packets I distributed during the first lecture, I'm going to read to you something that was said by John Calvin, okay? and, and, and something that echoes uh, a point Mr. McGuire made when he was doing a historical background of Luther and his life. These quotes are from John Calvin, okay? his Institutes of the Christian Religion. It is robbery from God to arrogate anything to ourselves, either in the will or in the act. Further, so long as man has anything, however small, to say in his own defense, so long he deducts somewhat from the glory of God. The psalm is, two more quotes, that man cannot claim a single particle of righteousness to himself, without, at the same time, detracting, keyword detracting, from the glory of the divine righteousness. And lastly, to whatever extent any man rests in himself, to the same extent he impedes okay, the benevolence of God. Okay, now there's a consistent theme at work here. Basically, if we do anything, anything good, that somehow this subtracts from God's ability to be involved in the world. And hence, this makes sense of what Martin Luther's up to. Okay, when he says, okay, in another quote, okay, 
that man does nothing, okay, but is nothing but a beast of burden that is pulled back and forth by God and the devil. Okay, man does nothing. And this makes sense, given even some of the history. Okay, remember, uh, Mr. McGuire made the point, that he was reluctant to sign on to the authority of the church. And his principal problem with a lot of what the church was saying regarding indulgences, etc., we, we addressed in, in the question session, is the problem was with the authority of the church. What's the problem? Partly, any human authority must, by its very nature, subtract from divine authority. Okay, so is this a justifiable notion? That if we do anything, we subtract from what God is doing in the world? Or is there a philosophical basis on which we can reconcile God's acting in the world and man's acting in the world simultaneously but in different ways? Okay, I would argue this can be accomplished by a, a concept of analogy, and participation in being, okay? And, and I'm going to get into this very briefly. And I hope to demonstrate, okay, how it is both possible that man and God can both be active in the performance of a single action and man's cooperation in this activity in no way subtracts or takes away from God's performing and involvement in the same activity. And with the concept of analogy, I believe this to be possible. So let me let me uh, go into some background. Uh, is this slide? Okay. So so what is what what are we dealing with here? Okay. What is Martin Luther afraid of? Okay. He's afraid of this. Okay. If we put God, okay, on par with man. We obviously do a radical disservice to God. God is omnipotent. God is transcendent. God is beyond, infinitely, anything that man is. And so he's petrified by affirming anything of man that we would subtract in some ways from God. And, and, and due to this, this fear, he makes the point... Okay, of, 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 of advocating that God is in some ways radically other than man. And there's some infinite chasm that separate them. Okay? That God is absolutely transcendent, and what that means is he is so other than man, okay, that, that we can't even comprehend by way of the natural world or our own lives anything about God. God is totally other. And it seems to go against some scriptures you might be familiar with. You know, somehow God is revealed through nature. And Romans 1.20 that says the things, of God, the things of God can be known through the things he has made. Okay, and anyway, something to ponder. Now, is there an alternative vision of reality? Do we have to say that either God is like man, a kind of Greek God that is some anthropomorphic thing like man, or do we have to hold that God is radically separated? Is there any way to preserve God's transcendence while holding simultaneously that there is some relationship or point of connection between God and man? 
Okay? Now, by way of a theory of participation and analogy, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, for one, feels like the church and, and, and Christian uh, philosophers have come up with a way to articulate this. That there's a halfway house between saying God and man are the same thing, and God and man are radically dissimilar. And that is by way of analogy. Okay, and I'm going to give you something I give my students. It's my own creation. I'm, I'm not necessarily proud of it, but it's, it's kind of funny. It's just kind of evolved in, in the way of lectures. And, and the students have dubbed it my funnel of being. Okay, okay I'll introduce you to the funnel now. Okay, so we have, uh, and this pen is kind of dying on us. So select another. Okay, we have, in reality, okay? We have a hierarchy of different things. Okay, and this goes on in some infinite way. Okay. We have a hierarchy of beings. Okay? I'm going to say that this portion in my funnel represents God in his transcendence. Now Thomas will hold, and I wish I could give you more background here, but just take me at my word here. Thomas will hold that God is subsistent being. God, in his very nature, is being itself. Okay? And therefore, every perfection, everything that is, in some ways, comes from God. God is perfectly good. God perfectly exists of his very nature. He's perfectly wise, etc. Now, he created other things to share in his being. Okay? And therefore, I'm going to do this and say all the way down to the most pathetic piece of, 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 of stuff okay, in the universe, mud, if you will, there is some point of connection with God and mud. Okay. What is it? Okay. It's that it exists fundamentally, okay, uh, among other things. It has existence. God is existence, and it has a shared existence. The kind of existence of mud, but nonetheless, Existence. Now, there are other things, like angels, okay? Angels. And men, okay? And animals, okay? And, and, and men. And angels. That also share in God's being, in this ascending hierarchy, okay? Angels are more like God. Why? They have perfections. They, they, they're rational beings. God is rational. A rock down here, this is plant life maybe, and, and, and rocks or other inanimate things. These things are like God insofar as they exist. Now their existence is not infinite like God's. It's a limited kind of existence. The kind of existence that we could say a rock has. Now plants, okay, not only are they existing, but they're living. Okay, they have an intrinsic principle of movement. A, a rock has to be moved from the outside, but plants move from within. Okay, you leave them alone and they move. They move themselves in some sense. Okay? And animals, okay, and then men and angels. And in an ascending hierarchy, we find beings, okay, angelic beings, which are a kind of being that participate, hence a theory of participation, in the being of God. Therefore, you know, men are good in ways that men are good. Not in the ways angels are good, but in the way men are good. They have a portion of being, a portion of goodness, and other perfections. 
Okay? Though all of this being and all of this goodness ultimately is derived from someone who is being and exists by his very nature. And that's God. But still you see something that seems to break this dichotomy. Seems to be a middle road between these two options. We have man, okay, or men and God, which are, insofar as men have being and goodness, he is like God, who also exists and is good, but it's a goodness that is simultaneously like God, and this squiggly line represents the way man is like God, but he's also unlike God, okay? And this aspect of the chart represents that his way of existing, his way of being good, is lacking in some way. It's not the fullness of being good that is possessed by God. And therefore, man is good. God is good. We can say that. But in a different way. Okay? And this is the concept of analogy. Okay? So we have, okay, in this case, okay, what are we saying? Okay? Okay, looking at this statement, God is good. Okay? Man is good. Looking at this worldview, okay, we can say and predicate, which is to say something of something else, goodness of man and goodness of God. If we have this worldview, that God and man are the same, then goodness in man and goodness in God is the same. We can't do that. Because God's goodness, he's more good than we are. Okay? Now, and that's actually called something called univocal predication. Okay? The other option is equivocal predication. That is this paradigm right here. Okay? That goodness is predicated of man and predicated in God in a totally different way. Like, like bark is said of the covering of a tree okay, and of the sound of a dog. They are being said in a totally dissimilar way. Okay? Now, what, what's the matter there? Well, in knowing what, what man's goodness, we learn absolutely nothing about God. There's this infinite chasm, and knowing what goodness is, what things are like down here, give us absolutely zero idea of what God is like. However, Thomas advocates a certain halfway house. That is analogy. And analogically, we can say, by way of analogy, that God is good and man is good in a way that's similar and in a way that is dissimilar. Okay? So we have univocal predication. The term is applied in exactly the same sense of man and God. That doesn't work. Equivocal predication. Goodness is said in a totally dissimilar way. That doesn't work. But with analogy, we're able to say that goodness is said of man because he's good, but in a limited sense. Whereas good being predicated of God is also the same thing that's said of him, which is in some way like man's goodness, except that it's infinite. Okay? Now, how does this all relate to what I talked about at the beginning? About somehow the man subtracting, if he does anything, subtracting from God. Well, let's look at that. Let's look at when we perform an action. And let's look at it from this paradigm. <clears throat> That God and man are the same. Okay? So God and man are the same. Let's look at how the same kinds of things participate in performing some action. 
If I were to ask Brendan, okay, to help me move this desk, can we share the load? Yes. And you're right. Absolutely. And because, you know, now I'm a, a, a little bit more built than my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Looks to be deceiving, Brendan. <laughs> anyway, uh, Real. Okay, let's be, let's be real. You know, Brandon would probably carry 90% of the desk. I would carry like 10%, you know. You know little old me on the other end, you know. I'm helping thing. Could you get a little more on this desk? You know, and so we can share the load. And he can do 90% of it, and I can do 10. Why? We can share the load because we're the same kind of thing. Can we do this with God? Let's think about it. What about the action of writing on the blackboard? And let's talk about two things that are rad that are different. The pen and me. Okay? Can we both share the load in writing that name on the board? Think about it. Did I write 90% of it and the pen wrote 10%? Did I write 50% and the pen wrote the other 50%? What percent of it did the pen do? Zero. Zero. Did it? Well, it seems like I used the pen. <laughs> it seems like the pen did something, or else there wouldn't be red ink up there, or red, red pens marks. <laughs> what seems to have done something, okay? And I seem to have done something. Do we have any other answers? Did the pen, what portion of this was written by the pen? Yes, 100%. And what portion of that was written by me? 100%. And you've stumbled on a concept of analogy. Okay? 100% of it is attributed to me. And 100% of it was attributed to the pen, but in a different way. And in a different sense. Okay? And that is a concept of analogy. Okay? I was the principal cause of that. I am accountable for the effect of the intelligibility of that. But the fact that it's red was essentially attributed to the fact that I used this instrument to make that mark. But because a pen is not a man, we can't cooperate. But we nonetheless can produce that effect together. Now, using this concept, what do we have to say about God and man working together? Martin Luther wants to say, John Calvin wants to say, that if I do anything, I am subtracting, like the pen would, from the production of this effect. And therefore limiting God's involvement in the world. Now, let's look at something. Now, I'm going to use a different example. I, I, I rarely step outside of the realm of philosophy and the theology, but I'm, I'm going to dabble with this. So, so be careful. Now, be careful. Now, I, I, I put an enormous caveat by anything that comes after what I'm going to say right now. Okay? Uh, but but I, think, I, I, think I, I, I think I have a little bit of this figured out. We, we, we can let, let our, our boss over here fill, fill in the gaps. But, 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 but what happens when the sacred authors write scripture. Okay? It's the inspired word of God. 
Who wrote it? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. God. God is the primary author of, of sacred scripture. Yes and no. He is the primary Did man, was man involved? Yes. Was he also in some sense 100% responsible? Yes. I mean, his, his, it's just that he's a complex instrument, right? Unlike the pen, I have reason. I have will. I have my own uh, talents, my own abilities or deficiencies in grammar. I have my own knowledge that I draw from. But does that subtract from God being the primary author? Not necessarily. I was 100% involved. God was 100% involved, but in a different way and in a different sense. God as the primary author, the sacred author as an instrumental cause of the writing of sacred scripture. Now, this has profound ramifications. We look at the question of authority. Martin Luther had a problem with that. How could any authority, it would seem that any authority takes away from the authority of Christ. But I think we've found, in some ways, a conceptual tool, a philosophical tool, to be able to say that uh, there's a reconciliation between authority uh, of, of, of rational beings that are, at the same time, instruments of God, and to be able to make sense of that. And if you see this, this thing can take you through a whole range and host of errors and, and, and challenges. Remember, I mean, what did he have a problem with? He had a problem with priests. He had a problem with sacraments. He had a problem with all of these things, art, sacred objects. Why? Because in reverence for the saints, reverence for the Blessed Mother, we were, we were subtracting from glory that ought to be attributed to God alone. But with this background, you can see that you can... Dedicate yourself in some real way and, and adore beautiful things that are not beautiful as God is beautiful, but are nonetheless still beautiful. And their beauty doesn't subtract from God's beauty. In some ways, they point us as imperfect goods or beautiful things to the standard of goodness and beauty. Because remember, things are said to be beautiful or more beautiful because there is a most beautiful. Things are said to be better than other things because there is a best, and that's God. And these natural things point us, we can appreciate them in and of themselves, but they also point beyond themselves to a deeper beauty, a deeper goodness that belongs to God in a perfect way and is only reflected in an imperfect fashion by His created goods. Okay. And if you see this, you can make sense of a whole range of, of problems. That somehow, the saints, all these things are subtracting from the glory of God. Okay, But in fact, there is a way to honor them for what they are perfectly. And in, in no way is that subtracting from God's glory. Okay. And with this theme of analogy, you can make sense of how man and God can be co-responsible for the production of effect in such a way that God is totally responsible and man is totally responsible. Okay? Tom, I, I, how am I doing? I, I looked at this. I think I have another... Five, five six. Five, six minutes. Okay. So, so, so with this, okay, I, I'm going to just try to tie this uh, uh, in, in a little bit. I mean, that with that, I'm, I'm very content with myself right now. Uh, because... because uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> Not because this, these are kind of points worthy of reflection, but why? Because I did it succinctly. And I did it you know, in, in such a way that I didn't go over the time limit and, 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 and impinge upon on the, you know, the words of wisdom that my colleague is going to share with you. And this brings me joy. Okay? I'll just be honest. I'd like to share. Okay. Now, let's, let's tie things together. Okay? So I'm going to make some sweeping generalizations that philosophers are entitled to make. Okay? Now, 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 now this, this, is, this is the way I'd like to conclude this. I mean, this seems to be a very fitting vision of reality. Okay? And this is a vision of reality that is quintessentially Catholic. Okay? That, that created things, are goods in themselves, worthy of honoring for what they are in, in a profound way. And yet they point beyond themselves to what is absolutely good. And what is absolutely good is God. And he does simultaneously transcend what we can know but yet we can know something about him by way of what he is creating. We know that he is good in some perfect way. Do we know what it means to be perfectly good? No. Okay? But we know he is that. Okay? And therefore we can grow in some knowledge of that, but ultimately we need some... some you know, potentiality added to us to really see God in his essence in the next life. It's not something we can do here. But this is able to keep man on the straight and narrow. Okay? How so? Because we are capable now of knowing something about God in the way of the natural world, okay, the natural world is intelligible. And Luther and Calvin would not permit the natural world to be intelligible. Hence, okay, we have this split. No, and this is the first point I made at the beginning of the semester. Uh, at the beginning of the semester, listen. Very much the teacher. We had this point that, that somehow God has been divorced from science. Okay? Because people want to explain things, okay? Based on natural causes, okay? I can account for the production of this effect. And, and he said, no. Luther said, it's all God. And so therefore we were forced to choose. But with analogy, we can affirm, and with Catholic things, it's always both and. Man is simultaneously affirmed in his dignity, and God is, is affirmed in his dignity, which is transcendent and, per, and preserved. And therefore, in, in, in truth, in our pursuit of the higher things, in pursuit of knowledge of God, we can come to know how he is through the things that have been made. Yet he transcends what we can know of him. And this keeps us sane in this way, and this I'm borrowing from Chesterton and his, his orthodoxy, uh, is this keeps us sane. This keeps the adventure of life intact. Because God is simultaneously mysterious and yet knowable, he is both familiar, something like home, okay? You know, when we discover something about God, we're, we're meeting someone who's very close to us, very familiar to us. Even in the things that have been made, he's present and his glory is manifest. And yet he's mysterious. And, and we're not going to give into a kind of a Hegelian uh, 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 notion that God can be totally comprehended. Because that is neither the Catholic vision of God. Okay? He can never be fully comprehended. And this preserves the adventure in life. It means that we can continue to learn and to grow in knowledge. Because as God is truth itself, the more we learn, the more we grow, the more we see of God without coming to any full comprehension of Him. And therefore preserves the, the mystery and adventure. And isn't that...
that what we're all after? I mean, think about it. What are you even looking for in a spouse? You're looking for a couple things, I would argue. This is what I looked for. You're looking for familiarity. You don't want someone who doesn't speak the same language. You don't want someone who can't, can't do the same things you do. Okay? But you also don't want to marry your cousin. You know? You don't want to marry someone who is so familiar that life is a drag and boring because you know everything about them. There, uh, there's nothing exciting. You want to marry someone who's a little bit different. Okay? And therefore, there's a little bit of mystery. Well, truth is exactly like that. There's nothing humdrum and boring about the truth. Okay, we can come to knowledge of what is, and in coming to knowledge of what is, we see even more clearly, as if from a mountaintop, the vast horizon of that which we know nothing about, and keeps us interested, keeps us growing and learning. Okay, and this is very much reconciled with this theory of analogy. Okay. Things are both knowable, and yet they reflect what is transcendent. Okay? And this, this, this harmonious worldview is very Catholic, and I would argue is a philosophical uh, uh, conception that prevents us from making and drawing some of the same conclusions that were drawn by Luther, Calvin, and the Reformers. Thank you very much. That's kind of a hard intro to follow. <laughs> Not only do I have to follow what Mark's talking, I have to follow. <laughs> oh boy! You know when when Mark was talking about analogy, I just I couldn't help but but think of this. You know there was an Islamic philosopher who had a similar hang-up about analogy. His name was Al-Ghazali. And Al-Ghazali taught that, you know, when you strike a match, right, you are not causing the match to light. God is causing the match to light. Right? Maybe one day God might decide not to cause the match to light. Right? You know, and then Al-Ghazali was kind of painted into this corner by his, his desire to preserve the reality of miracles in the Quran. Uh, but it, it's funny, you know, undergraduate students have these various sources of information that they use to exchange with one another, newsletters and things like that. The advent of the internet has just facilitated that. So there are all sorts of things on the internet that undergraduate students use to communicate with one another, joke about professors, rape professors. And when you're a professor, you have to keep an eye on that for the professional reasons that are kind of obvious. Uh, but I, I was looking through at a, the, the teacher ratings at a place where one of, my, one of my old friends teaches philosophy at Ohio Dominican University. And uh, I saw they had a teacher at Ohio Dominican on this list whose name was Al-Ghazali. And I thought, okay, that's, that's either a joke or it's real, but I'm just going to click on it and see what it is. And, and the, the rating said, you know, he's a pretty, a pretty great teacher, but every time he gives a quiz, he says, God made him do it. <laughs> they also had a teacher named Tomas de Torquemada on there. And it said he had an incandescent intellect. <laughs> Slowly, slowly. <laughs> Someone's going to wake up at 2 in the morning and get that. <laughs> but anyway. Um, yeah. So as, as far as the, the historical narrative is concerned, actually, so far, we've spent a lot of time tracing, first of all, in, in the first lecture, the kind of broader background of European history that's necessary to understand the Reformation. Then second of all, the early part of Luther's life was the principal subject of our conversation last time. We talked about his childhood, his entrance into the monastery, his entrance into holy orders, the difficulties he experienced in monastic life, and uh, maybe the beginnings of his desire to confront the papacy and to confront the Catholic Church about various practices and beliefs. Now, Luther's Reformation, if you will, really came of age in the year 1520. 
1520 was a banner year for Luther. This was the year that Luther published three very powerful, very seminal treatises that are the foundation for what, what goes on to become the, the church that we call the Lutheran church. Uh, the titles of these treatises are interesting. The first treatise was entitled uh, A Letter to the Christian Nobility of the German Nation. Now, it's very important for us to understand this letter to the Christian nobility of the German nation. We have to understand the historical context. We have to really understand what the German nation is in the early part of the 16th century. Um, does anybody have a clue, if I were to ask you, what, what would, when we talk about Germany in the early 16th century, what are we really talking about? Are we talking about one country? No, no, no. no not at all. We're, we're not, so, so you know that, at least that basis. We're not talking about a united nation state. In fact, Germany was not in any sense a single country uh, prior to the, the very tail end of the 19th century. Prior to that, Germany is it's a collection of sovereign entities, a kind of loose federation of sovereign entities that goes by various pretentious names in the Middle Ages, one of which is the Holy Roman Empire. Right? And of course, you have Voltaire's very cynical quip that it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Uh, but, you know, there's some, there's some insight there, in fact. Um, Germany in, in the Middle Ages and in early modernity was a collection, a kind of a loose confederation of different, very, uh, you know, some big, some small, but very many principalities, uh, cities, uh, different sovereign entities of various kinds. It's hard to find a, a more specific designation than that. Some of these were dukedoms, some of them were principalities, some of them were cities that were ruled by bishops, others were cities that were ruled by princes or, or cities that were ruled by town councils or something like that. Yeah, so you have this... Something called the electors, right? Well, electors are different. An elector is a noble who has the right to cast a vote for the office of Holy Roman Emperor. Oh. Right. So an elector might might be a very an elector. When you sit, when you think elector, it, it's not election in the sense that we understand. It. It's not a popular right. election. Right. Uh, the the electors were a very elite group of men, nobles who were very powerful who had the right to cast a vote for the, this office of Holy Roman Emperor. And the Holy Roman Emperor, especially by the 16th century, had a role that um, wasn't really what we would normally assume associate with being an emperor. He didn't rule an empire that was united um, in any kind of tight or centralized sort of way. Holy Roman Emperor is uh, the, the nominal head of this loose confederation of principalities. Right? So as you can imagine, in the Holy Roman Empire, that is to say in Germany, authority was always an issue. Right? Authority was always an issue. In the Middle Ages, the papacy fought a long, hard battle over you know, who had authority over the church in Germany? Was it the Holy Roman Emperor? Was it the nobility? Was it the papacy? Right. And this is a battle that ends in a papal victory in the 12th century. Right. But by the time we get to the early modern period, the fortunes of the papacy are obviously at a very low ebb. And this dispute about authority is, is ripe to kind of reassert itself. And Luther recognizes this. Luther is in every way a creature of his context and a man of his context. So his letter to the Christian nobility of the German nation dealt specifically with this issue of church authority. What he asserted in this letter to the Christian nobility was that the Romanists, and he's careful to call them the Romanists, to invoke this idea that uh, the people who have done this are foreigners. Uh, what the Romanists have done is they have set up walls, and the walls have separated um, Christians from a true Christian life. Right? And the first wall, 
Uh, the, the first wall that he identifies is the wall between the clerical and the lay state. In fact, what Luther proposes in this letter to the Christian nobility of the German nation is in a very radical sort of way that all believers, all Christians, are in some sense priests. And in some very real sense, right? This is not um, this, uh, the kind of attenuated notion of the priesthood of believers that's familiar uh, to Catholics. Luther means this in a very real, tangible way. He gives this, uh, this argument in the letter. He says, if there were 10 brothers, if there were 10 brothers, all of whom heirs, co-heirs of the one king, and they happened to appoint one of them to administer the kingdom or something like that, the other nine would be true kings still. Their kingship would not be attenuated or weakened in any way. They would still be true heirs of the kingdom, true sons of their father. Right? And this is Luther's understanding of what the clergy is, if you think about it. The clergy are people who are appointed from among the community to administer things in the church, maybe to teach, maybe to preach, right? to have control over whatever liturgy is going on and what kind of liturgy would be going on. It's not really clear to Luther at this point. Right. But everyone, by virtue of their membership in Christ's mystical body, is in fact a priest in the full-fledged sense. Right. Everyone's a priest. It's a very radical statement, the way he formulates it in this letter. Uh, ultimately, what, what the, the sensitivity that he's trying to tap into among the German nobility is the sensitivity that's left over from the Gregorian reform in the Middle Ages, when the papacy asserted its sole authority uh, over the appointment of bishops and over the investiture of bishops with the symbols of their authority. Right? This is something that kind of remains a sore subject among the nobility in Germany for a long time. And Luther's tapping into that sensitivity, saying, you know, remember when the papacy fought this battle with you over who had the right to invest bishops with the symbols of their authority? Well, I say to you, every man is a priest. And this wall between you know, a cleric and a layman, between a priest and a layman, is something artificial. It doesn't date back to the time of Christ and the apostles. It's something that was invented and concocted by the Romanists. That's what Luther proposes. And so that's the first wall. Now, there's a second wall. Luther says, in addition to this wall, there's a wall that the Romanists have set up. And this is a, uh, their claim to sole authority to interpret Scripture. What Luther tells the, the Christian nobility of Germany is this. Look, the papacy has claims to have the sole authority to interpret Scripture. This is an unwarranted claim. This is a claim that really has no warrant in sacred tradition or in Scripture. And this is something that we have to resist. Because ever, since every man is a priest, right? since every man belongs to this clerical state equally, it follows logically Every man has an equal authority to take the scriptures and interpret them. No man has any more authority than any other man to interpret the scriptures. There's no interpretation that's more authoritative than any other. Right. Then the third thing that Luther mentions, and this, this might sound kind of strange, if, if you're a practicing Lutheran especially, this might sound kind of strange, um, but Luther says the third wall that's been set up by the Romanists is this claim that the papacy has sole authority to call an ecumenical council. Right. Luther's claim, in fact, is that it, it you know, derives from the, the radical egalitarianism that he proposes about this, you know, the idea that the division between the clerical and the lay state is artificial. It follows 
that since any Christian is like any other Christian on some level, authority to call an ecumenical council should in no way rest solely with the papacy. And in fact, he, what he's really proposing is that some member of the German nobility take it upon himself to call an ecumenical council, which Luther argues should be considered just as infallible, just as authoritative as any other ecumenical council in the church's history. Now, it's interesting that he's appealing to a council in 1520. You have to remember, in, in the 16th century, there's an idea that's very much afloat within the church, and the idea is called conciliarism. I think I've, I've mentioned it in passing without really getting into it, but to be precise, conciliarism is this idea that, in fact, general councils or ecumenical councils are the highest authority within Christianity. Right? It was a belief that it was very novel. It was first proposed in the 14th century. It gained a lot of steam in the 14th century. It kind of dies, dies away a little bit in the 15th century. But Luther reinvokes this idea, this idea that a general council is the highest authority in the church. But he goes further to say any Christian can call it. Any Christian can invoke a general council and endow a general council with its authority. Now, this, this is a, a very radical assault on the authority of the church, as it had been traditionally understood in Western Europe for centuries. Right? And you can see the, some of the implications of what he's proposing. Right? Some of the implications of what Luther's proposing, in fact, go beyond what Luther himself would have intended. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, the second treatise uh, that Luther wrote in this year, 1520, his second treatise was entitled um, A Prelude on the Babylonian Captivity. Of the Church. Now, practicing Catholics might be familiar with that kind of phraseology. When, when Catholics say the Babylonian captivity of the church, what are they referring to usually? Avignon. Right. We're referring to the time when the papacy um, had moved its seat from Rome into, into Avignon and the Pope resided in France for a number of years. This is a time that it's sometimes referred to as the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. Right? And it was referred to that way by contemporaries, interestingly enough. But Luther takes this term and he says, no, no the Babylonian captivity of the church is the state of affairs that had existed since when he's not sure yet. Right? Luther's not sure how far back to date this corruption of the church. Right? Later on, he, he comes up with different answers that tend to differ throughout Luther's life. But at this point, he says, well, be that as it may, no matter when it happened, the point is that the church has been held captive right, to the sacramental system. Right? This treatise on the Babylonian captivity of the church is all about the seven sacraments. Now, everyone's familiar with the Catholic doctrine, the doctrine that's shared if you're a Latin Catholic or if, if you're um, an Eastern Christian, if you're Eastern Orthodox or Eastern Catholic. Uh, the Christian East and the Latin West have always held in common this belief in seven sacraments. And, and from the Baltimore Catechism, what's a sacrament? Yeah, three points back there. It's an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. So the idea that the sacraments were instituted by Christ himself is kind of essential to the identity of what a sacrament is. Right? Now, of course, if you're a Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, or even if you're a Monophysite or a Nestorian, if we have any of those in our company tonight, uh, <laughs> of course, fundamentally, you see the deeds of Christ, the way St. John describes them, as not being confined to the Scriptures. Right? Christ did many things which aren't written down in the Scriptures. Right? But according to Luther, remember, fundamentally, we're relying solely on the Scriptures. 
So Luther goes through the scriptures and he says, well, you know what? There aren't seven sacraments. And, and this is what he argues in the streets. He says, you know what? The Eucharist, I'll call that a sacrament. Okay. He, he starts by saying, okay, well, we'll start with the Eucharist. Eucharist, ching, that's a sacrament. But, nevertheless, in this treaty, Luther proposes a fundamentally, a radically different understanding of what the Eucharist is uh, than had been held at any time prior in Christian history. What Luther proposes is this very interesting idea that uh, after the consecration, the Eucharist remains bread and wine. Christ is somehow really present in the bread and wine, and Luther will hold that. He'll even hold that at variance with other reformers. People like Zwingli and Calvin will deny that there's any real way in which Christ is present. Luther will say, no, Christ is really present, but he's present somehow in bread and wine. It stays bread and wine. And Christ is present in them because of the faith of the believers who are there. Right. So if the Eucharist is a sacrament, but it means something different from what Catholics would hold. Uh, how about baptism? Sure, secondarily, baptism. Um, baptism, ching, that's a sacrament for Luther. But baptism also, just like the Eucharist, he has to change what it means completely. And this is, it's once again, it's related to this concept of analogy that Mark was bringing up. Okay, if you're a Catholic, fundamentally, does baptism do anything, or does it just symbolize what's done? It does. It, does. it does something. It really does. It does what it symbolizes. Right? So if baptism does it, does God do it? Yeah. Yeah. So the the, the priest and the water uh, and the words, do they do it? Does the pen write on the board? <laughs> the priest and the water and the words, they do do it, but God also does it. Right? In a different sense. Because Luther can't wrap his mind around that, he can't wrap his mind around the idea that baptism actually really does anything. Right? So what he says is, baptism, yeah, in some sense, baptism can, can justify you, but only insofar as it's an act of faith to receive baptism. Right? So fundamentally, it's only the faith, once again, that justifies the believer. The baptism doesn't actually do anything. Um, what about the sacrament of penance? Interesting one. Uh, Luther's kind of ambivalent about this. L Luther, uh, he treats penance as being in some sense in the same category as the Eucharist and baptism. This is why in popular summaries of Luther's teaching, sometimes it'll say that Luther holds three sacraments, sometimes it'll say two. Because right? Luther's kind of ambiguous about penance. He says it's a sacrament, but then he says it's not really a sacrament. Right? He says it's a sacrament because when the believer confesses his sins, it's an act of faith, and faith justifies you. Right. So once again, it's a fundamentally different understanding from the Catholic understanding of confession, right, or the sacrament of penance. But he says that there's still some kind of sacrament there because your faith is involved, but it's not really an outward sign. Yeah. And so he, he struggles with penance. Now, what about the other sacraments? What about holy orders? Is that a sacrament? No. No, because everyone's a priest. Right. What about um, extreme unction? No. No, not a sacrament at all for Luther. Uh, how about... Uh, what marriage. Marriage. Well, marriage is an interesting one. Yeah, marriage is an Is marriage a sacrament at all for Luther? No. No, no. And, and, and that's the most shocking thing of all. Um, the one that I'm forgetting that I wanted to talk about before marriage is confirmation. Confirmation. Luther has no time whatsoever for confirmation. He says it's not a sacrament at all. Um, but then marriage is an interesting one because if marriage isn't a sacrament, 
then marriage, it's not something that was instituted on a, some level by Christ. Right? Christ doesn't make any fundamental contribution then to what marriage is. Then marriage is a purely human thing. Right? And in that case, who has authority over marriage? For the state. The state or the nobility or whoever the authority is, right? So yeah, marriage is, is removed in some sense from the purview of the church by Luther's teaching. It's not a sacrament. Fundamentally, uh, the prince or the town council or whoever has just as much authority over marriage as some trumped-up priest might have, as far as Luther is concerned. Uh, so this, this treatise on the Babylonian captivity of the church is one of his most radical things. You know, it, Luther actually wrote this treatise in Latin uh, because it was meant to be more of an academic treatise. Then there was a Franciscan who read it and was shocked. And he said, oh my gosh, what this guy is saying is so radical, people need to know about it. <laughs> so he translated it into German, and then the German version got spread all over Central Europe, and that, that's how this treatise got spread among the populace and, and became very influential. Right. Now, the third treatise uh, is kind of interesting because the third is more conciliatory. You know, in the first two treatises, the treatise um, to the Christian nobility and the treatise on the Babylonian captivity, Luther he's flat out saying the Pope is the Antichrist. The Pope is the Antichrist, no bones about it. But then his third treatise is called A Treatise on the Freedom of a Christian. And uh, it's funny, Luther actually opens this treatise with a letter to Pope Leo X. It's kind of an open letter to Leo X. And he says to Leo X, you know what, I realize maybe you're not such a bad guy, maybe you're not the Antichrist, um, but maybe you just have evil advisors who are deceiving you or something like that. So please read this treatise. This, this will really tell you what I'm all about. And what Luther does in this treatise, he begins with this very paradoxical statement. He says, on the one hand, the Christian is a free lord subject to none. On the other hand, the Christian is a perfectly dutiful slave subject to all. Now, what's he trying to get at? What's he trying to grapple with there? Well, fundamentally, he's dealing with this issue of, okay, if we're justified by faith, why do we have to do anything? Luther has already gone out there with very radical statements about how faith alone is what justifies us. And now he's trying to grapple with the question, okay, if faith alone justifies us, then why is there any such thing as, as Christian duties? Why, why can't I have 12 wives like the Prophet Muhammad? Why can't I, you know, just go do whatever the hell I want, fundamentally, right? And Luther doesn't want um, his teaching to be um, susceptible to the charge of moral inferiority. This is something that Luther is very conscious of. So he makes this argument in the treatise on the freedom of a Christian that the Christian is a perfectly free Lord subject to none. The Christian has been freed by Christ from the law. He can do fundamentally whatever he wants on some level. And yet, he won't because he's a good guy. Now, of course, I'm reducing this to the lowest common denominator just so you can somehow understand what Luther's grappling with here. But it's not very far off. Luther, in this treatise, even more so than the other two, in the treatise on the freedom of a Christian, we see Luther's interior struggle with these issues. I remember one of my professors uh, said to me one time, we needn't tax Luther with consistency. 
Right? And then you can see that more clearly in the treatise on the freedom of where What he's saying is, on the one hand, I know that I'm totally free. On the other hand, what does that mean? That doesn't mean I can go do whatever I want. That means that um, I, I freely enter the slavery to Christ on some level. I'm subject to Christ in my brethren. I'm subject to Christ um, in the preaching the gospel. And I still want to be subject to Christ. But on the other hand, he's acknowledging the logical conclusions of his previously stated premises. Right? And so it's, we see in this treatise on the freedom of the Christian some of the difficulties that Luther and, by extension, Lutheranism are going to have to confront. So now, after the publication of these three treatises, Luther is in serious trouble. These, these three treatises have constituted a radical attack on the foundations of Christianity as it has been practiced in Western Europe for centuries. And that means Luther's in trouble. And so what happens is, of course, there was going to be a meeting in 1521, a meeting of all the nobility of the Holy Roman Empire. These meetings were called diets. There's going to be a diet at a place called Worms. Yeah, Worms. So that you have the famous diet of worms that no history student ever forgets. And it was at this meeting, attended by the Emperor Charles V, that these doctrines were all placed on the table. Luther's writings were placed on the table in front of him. And Charles V said, well, did you write this stuff? And then Luther, of course, said, well, yes, I did. I wrote all of it. And it, there's this apocryphal, and most historians think it's apocryphal, but nevertheless very dramatic statement frequently attributed to Luther. Hey. But, uh, what's it? Science. Oh, no, well, you know what I'm going to say, right? It's, it's hey. right? here I stand, I can do no other. And God help me. <laughs> now, uh, Luther left the Diet of Worms under a sort of tentative, uh, you know, very, uh, very mild, um, or sorry, he arrived at the Diet of Worms under a very mild safe conduct. Uh, he left the Diet of Worms as an outlaw. Uh, because he was seen as a contumacious heretic, he was left um, by Charles V and the others in the state of, of outlawry, which means what? It means effectively you're open to be killed. Uh, as a heretic. Now, fortunately for Luther, though, for him personally, his appeal to the German nobility had found some very interesting listeners, one of which was the elector of Saxony, Frederick III. And so after Luther left the Diet of Worms, before he could be kidnapped and executed by any of the, the Catholic nobility of Germany, which is precisely what they would have done, he was kidnapped by the elector of Saxony, who brought him to a castle and hid him there for a while. And while Luther was in hiding, he grew a beard, and uh, he read scripture, and, and he had adopted this new alias and all of that. But then it's kind of interesting, because during Luther's captivity, uh, during Luther's captivity in this castle, and this is still in the year 1521, at the very dawn of the Reformation, it's during his captivity that the Reformation gets out of control. While Luther was in captivity, he began to hear reports of the effect his dogmas were having throughout Germany. Even in his town where he had been teaching at the University of Wittenberg, he heard of the kinds of radically iconoclastic social revolutions that were taking place. And so it was that Luther, the following year, emerged from hiding. He went to Wittenberg, and he tried to modify the zeal of his own disciples at Wittenberg, but it was too late. The cat was already out of the bag. Luther spent the rest of his life as a comparative conservative. 
Right? He spent the rest of his life as a relative conservative compared to those who, who took his doctrines in all of their radicalness and ran with them. Right? A prime event that everyone always brings up when talking about Luther is the 1525 Peasants' Rebellion. Right? In 1525, the peasants of Germany, of course, took Luther's teachings and said, well, heck, if there are no divisions among men, if every Christian is the same as another Christian, then isn't some lay lord just as illegitimate as some priest? Right? If priests have no authority over me, then why the heck would the elector of Saxony have authority over me? Right? This resulted in a full-fledged peasants' rebellion in 1525, where Luther sided completely with the nobility. Right? And, and it, it's, it's one of those things that is brought up by anti-Lutheran polemicists consistently, where you can bring up the, these paragraphs of Luther quotations during the Peasants' Rebellion, where he said, you know, just massacre them all like the dogs that they are. And that sort of so, you know, he sides consistently with the nobility, because the nobility are his only source of protection. Right? It's the nobility who have an interest, in some sense, in promoting Luther and protecting him. Right? But even on some conscientious level, Luther seems to be horrified by the effect that his ideas have throughout Germany. Now, in a much wider sense, in a much wider sense, the rest of European history, down to modern times, all the way down to the Enlightenment, all the way down to the secularization of European society, the rest of European history uh, stems from Luther's radical break with the church. Uh, you have an immediate outbreak of war within the Holy Roman Empire that lasts until 1555. It's settled in 1555 at the, the Peace of Augsburg, where they adopted this principle. Now, you know the famous principle, cuius regio, eius religio. Right, the principle, yeah. Um, in other words, let each ruler of each territory decide what their religion would be, right? and that's how you settle the religious war. Uh, but that didn't last. New religious wars broke out in Germany, in France, right? in England, as we all well know, right? In Scotland, all throughout the European world, over the ensuing decades, with the Reformation came religious violence, right? until finally the violence culminated in the horrific Thirty Years' War between 1618 and 1648. Now, you know, the, the Thirty Years' War was settled by this, this Peace of Westphalia in 1648, which basically adopted a, a kind of moderate toleration. Not that toleration was ever an ideal. Toleration was never an ideal that was believed in by Catholics in the early modern period or by reformers. Right? Everyone believed that every state should hold to their religion and none other. Right? But a kind of pragmatic toleration is adopted in 1648, which results in the kind of religious balkanization of Europe and consequently the removal, in some sense, of religion from the public sphere in European life, politically and morally. And this is why the, the Pope in 1648, he called the Peace of Westphalia iniquitous, invalid, obscene. Right? Not that peace was a bad thing, but that peace on these terms would lead to the secularization of European society. As far as Protestant and Catholic rulers were concerned in 1648, there was no alternative. And that's where I'll have to end because I'm out of time. Conciliarism idea, that sounds, from what you wrote, it sounds an awful lot like the arguments that the Eastern Orthodox were making against the Catholic Church. It's what, what, what is the difference between the two? Did they have any, is there any historical basis for Luther's 
are you against, given what the Eastern Orthodox were charging, continue to charge today? Well, here's, here's an interesting argument, Chris. Um, the, Eastern, the Eastern Orthodox in the middle of the 15th century were aggressively seeking union with Rome. Right? They were seeking union with Rome because Constantinople was being besieged by the Ottoman Turks. Um, so the Eastern Orthodox had to make a decision in the middle of the 15th century about who in the West they were going to talk to when it came to union with the Western Church. Because right at that point, in, you know, in the 1440s, there was a council that was sitting at Basel. Uh, and there was a pope, Eugenius IV, in Rome. And the, the council claimed to be ruling the church, and the pope claimed to be ruling the church. Right? And the council of Basel deliberately kind of rejected papal authority, at least at that portion of its history. And the pope in Rome considered the council to be illegitimate. So the Eastern Orthodox has to make a decision, with whom do we negotiate? And they, without hesitation, they chose to negotiate with the Pope. Uh, they knew, because the Pope is the legitimate authority over the Latin Church, as far as they saw. Conciliarism would have very different connotations. The kind of conciliarism that you find in Eastern Orthodoxy is very different, because it's a conciliarism that derives its authority from the fact that the bishops have assembled there under the Holy Spirit. Right? That the bishops are not employees of the council. The council is a vehicle through which the bishops collectively express the teaching of Christ. Right. Whereas for the, the kind of radical conciliarism, the, this very strange novel conciliarism that you see in the West in the 14th and 15th centuries, and with, with Luther for a brief period in the 16th century, it, it's this other kind of strange conciliarism where they say, well, bishops and patriarchs and, and popes derive their authority from councils somehow, and, and councils should be the regular way of doing business in the church, you should have a council every few years, and, and the council is the highest authority. And that's that's not at all um, you know, akin to the Eastern Orthodox attitude towards councils. So. Uh, it, it seems from what I've heard tonight that the ideological energy for the Reformation came from Germany. That, you know, the, now, my question is, how did it play out in England? Did you have the same Zwinglies and 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 people like this who are, uh, or, or or was was Catholicism just sort of stripped away from the people? Uh, with that, there wasn't this kind of reaction to Catholicism from the people that there might have been in Germany. Uh, right. If you will, less. Uh, well, it's funny. The English Reformation is a very yes. complicated reality. Um, our understanding of the whole reality of the English Reformation has been revised in recent years. Eamon Duffy, if you're familiar with his name, he wrote a, a very influential monograph called the, the Stripping of the Altars. Right? He's basically making the argument on a popular level in England during the Reformation. Catholic belief and practice were vibrant yes. right, and sincere and widespread. And in fact, the implication is that the English Reformation is this very elite phenomenon that was forced on the populace from the top down. As it were, and and this is in contrast with previous consensus on on the English Reformation, which held that that Catholicism was somehow decadent in England in the 16th century. Eamon Duffy tries to refute that, and he does so in a way that's been widely accepted within academia. Um, the English Reformation is was not intended originally to be a reformation right, along Lutheran or Calvinist lines. Uh, I mean, you're familiar with the circumstances. Henry VIII effectively had to make a power play regarding ecclesiastical authority because of the marriage situation that he was in. And when he makes this power play, it occurs in an environment, in a context that invites um, 
Lutheran ideas and Calvinist ideas to kind of come and collect in England. But it's funny, during Henry VIII's lifetime, if you were really a Lutheran or really a Calvinist, you had to kind of keep your head down. Henry VIII was a firm believer in the seven sacraments. Um, he, wasn't, he didn't really have the time of day for the rad, more radical Lutheran or Calvinist arguments. But nevertheless, during his reign, uh, prominent figures were promote people who were willing to support Henry VIII's anti-papal stance, who were closet Lutherans or closet Calvinists. And after his death, it was those people who were influential over Edward VI. And that's why in the reign of Edward VI, you have this very radical, almost Calvinist kind of reformation that takes place in England. And of course, there's a backlash against that. English Protestantism, it's such a diverse spectrum of opinion. You have constant battling in the 16th century. And then Elizabeth tries to compromise with, with everyone, the, the Elizabethan settlement, as it's called. It's, it's kind of tanked in England because Elizabeth had such a long reign. She reigns for half a century. And so she's able to kind of preside over the settlement. It, Calvinists refer to England as the, the church, but halfly reformed. <laughs> yeah, and I might add something very briefly. I mean, I, I think you know, I might dispute the principle that there's something essentially Germanic about the, the, the Reformation itself. It, 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 as far as the, the philosophical background goes, uh, I pointed out in previous lectures, the last two, that the, the, the <coughs> denial of natural philosophy, okay, that, that there is something in the natural world that can say something about God, and also the denial that, that, that human beings, by way of their rational capacities, can come to any universal knowledge of human nature and the way people ought to behave, and therefore everything, all ethical norms, ought to be uh, received exclusively from God, and there's nothing about our nature that can reveal how we ought to act. Now, these themes that I talked about were, were, were uh, ideas and notions that were propagated by Lord Lockham, who himself was English, although uh, you know, he, he resided for the majority of his life in, in uh, all across the, the kind of uh, Christendom at the time in Italy and, and eventually in Germany, ironically. Uh, but but those ideas are you know slowly, insofar as he founded a nominalist school of thought, affected uh, institutions of higher learning, Oxford, Cambridge, etc. And so so there was kind of a, a, the kind of nominalist school that is in some ways more open to kind of these Protestant notions and, and, and the way Protestant theology. It's more it's more. Uh, uh, able to be reconciled more easily with, with Protestant thought, and, and, and those you know ultimately derive from an individual who is English himself. You know, so so there might not be something that's, that's essentially Germanic about uh, the Reformation itself. So. Uh, so a lot of people say that Pope Leo X was slow to react to the Reformation. That's why it got out of hand. In your professional opinion, as a historian, how true is that? Oh, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's it's always easy to say things like that in hindsight. But in practical terms, looking at the historical context, what could Leo X have done other than what he did do? You know, Leo X examined Luther's teachings. Uh, he invited Luther to recant his teachings. He excommunicated Luther when Luther didn't recant. Uh, normally, those measures would have been enough. Right? But the, the fact is that Europe had changed by the 16th century, and so it, it wasn't enough. I don't know. I mean, when they say Leo X was slow to react, what they mean is that he took a while reviewing Luther's teaching. But that's the kind of care that we would expect him to have, you know, when it comes to, to reviewing something. It would have been hasty if he had issued a condemnation or something without taking time to digest what Luther was actually teaching. Um, I'd just like to, I don't think put a question mark on it, but I'd like to just clarify that when Luther was uh, asked to recant, um, well, I'm thinking specifically at Worms, uh, 
he sincerely wanted to know of what, uh, uh, how, where he had uh, erred. And uh, he asked uh, uh, to be told, uh, shown by either reason or, by either scripture or reason, where, where he had erred. And they refused to tell him, to discuss it or tell him where he had erred. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and then it's only after that that he uh, said, I will not, I cannot, can't God help, help me, here I stand. And, uh, but another, on another point uh, that you mentioned, uh, when you said that Luther describes the uh, sacraments as being effective only by faith, uh, this uh, is not my understanding of Luther. Uh, Luther was, that's more of a Baptist idea, Luther was very insistent that the body and blood of Christ are in the Lord's Supper, and uh, he um, uh, argued against the uh, Calvinists very uh, vehemently. Uh, saying that all, Judas Iscariot also received uh, the body and blood of Christ, even though he did not believe. Now that's something that uh, the other Protestants could not accept, uh, only the Lutherans. Now, uh, also baptism. He asks in his catechism, how can water do such great things, meaning work forgiveness of sins and other things. And, and his answer in the catechism is, uh, it's not... Uh, it's not the water that does it, but but the word of God, uh, and uh, I don't remember the rest of it, what, uh, the quotation in there. But he always attributes the power to the word of God, and he does not confuse it with the faith of the of the recipient. Mm -hmm. but I'm sorry I couldn't put a, a, a question on it. No, no, that, that's fine. That's fine. In fact. Um, I had a, a good friend in, in grad school who was a, um, I went to grad school in St. Louis, and so there were there were a lot of Missouri Synod uh, Lutheran churches out there. And a good friend of mine was a, a Missouri Synod Lutheran, and, and he would very much passionately hold to, to what you're saying about how to interpret Luther. He would say, no, you have to interpret Luther um, in a more conservative way, I guess. That the problem is that Luther's writings are so diverse and so all over the place. Well, I, but I don't think that he ever recanted anything that he wrote in those three treatises that you mentioned. Um, he develops the ideas further from the, from the scriptures, but uh, nowhere, to my knowledge, does he, he recant anything or, or, or revise any of his, any of his views. I, no, no, I no, could no, be wrong, but on the yeah. main, main things that he taught, he, he held to the rest of his life, and including the, uh, his idea of the papacy, it was in as late as 1545 he, he he wrote a treatise called Against the Papacy in Rome and the Institution of the Devil. You know. And uh, but the, uh, as for the other doctrines that he held, the same the same is true as far as I know. Yeah. <coughs> we've got three, so we go one, two, three, and then we're done. Okay, very quickly. Um, it seemed that uh, some of this philosophical thought that is still brought in the Roman Catholic Church today oh, sure. in modern times among some of our contemporary theologians and, and organizations and so forth. Um, uh, is it felt that um, this derives from Luther or these people just uh, sort of putting together their own anti-authoritarian strength? 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's a complex situation. Okay, I think that uh, the effect that that you know uh, that Luther and other of the reformers who you know, take on uh, a certain kind of influential role in human history, I mean, the fact that they deny the capacity of human reason to say anything intelligible about what is transcended is influential. But 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 I would argue too that there's there's a lot of people. Uh, that would argue that on natural grounds. And so part of, of, of the origin of, of reticence, even on the part of Catholics, uh, to deny uh, uh, that the, the, the natural truth says something about the divine is not strictly due to the reformers, but also due to philosophers. Okay? The philosophy of the Renaissance and Enlightenment begins to deny the capacity of man to know truth and of, 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 of uh, sensible things to reveal anything about the supersensible. Okay, uh, Kant, for instance, uh, he is, is, is the famous kind of uh, uh, individual who's also Lutheran, he happens to be Lutheran, but, but he gives philosophical reasons for why there can be no uh, knowledge about what is supersensible. Uh, basically, you know, I, I could get into all the theories. So, so I think there is an influence of, of, of the reformers, but there's also an influence on the modern mind that has to take as credible individuals like Immanuel Kant, okay, and, and these great historical figures in, in science and in philosophy that deny the capacity of, 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 of our, our reason to say anything about God. And therefore, there's this dichotomy which evolves between natural knowledge and supernatural knowledge, which are entirely separate. And, and, and though you know that that was a vision of reality that Luther embraced to some extent, and he did embrace that, and he simply affirmed the theological. There's also those individuals who just denied theology and affirmed the natural. And I think the, just basically from these two fonts, they're basically in some sense affirming the same thesis. And, and, and therefore, uh, from multiple angles, modern man is 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 is, is caused to doubt his capacity to know truth, and for the natural world to be able to say anything about uh, what is, is not a part of our sense experience. And so I think there's, there's multiple fonts, uh, that being one of them. Um, I think you spoke briefly tonight about the decline of the kingly power, whereas in the first class in this semester you talked about the decline of papal power. I wonder if there's any comparison between the two declines and any similar causes. Did I say decline of kingly power? I, that's what I understood. But the kingly, the kings oh, yeah. oh, were kind of perhaps what is to, to clarify that it's more in the Holy Roman Empire. It's not that there ever was a strong centralized kingly power. Not that kingly power in general in Europe was in decline in the early modern period. I mean, quite the contrary. Kingly power is going through the roof in the early modern period. This is at the age of absolutism and, and all that. But it's um, in the Holy Roman Empire in Germany. There simply had never been any such thing. Right. I guess we're talking about the peasant revolt. Peasant, peasant revolt. Oh, you're thinking the peasant revolt. Yeah, that, that's, it's not so much a revolt against kingly power per se, but against the nobility of Germany um, in, in localized social situations. Right? It, it, it's, it's a phenomenon. It really doesn't have anything to do with the decline of, of kings or the decline of centralized states per se. It, it's one of these typical things. It's kind of the last echo, maybe, of the peasant uprisings of the 14th and 15th centuries. Um, which begin maybe in the second half of the 14th century, you first find things like the Jacquerie in France and, and other peasant uprisings that indicate a kind of a, maybe a social unrest on the part of peasants. But it's something in the early modern period that then is inflamed by the, the egalitarian nature of Lutheran teaching. It doesn't really seem to signify a decline of kingly power, nor even a decline of noble power, because of course the nobles are simply able to massacre the peasants, and so 
Uh, so it's, it's not really indicative of, of a decline of, of royal or noble power, I don't think. Thank you. Um, first of all, can I salute you both as um, very profound lectures. I've immensely enjoyed spending the last three weeks with you. Thank you. I've learned a lot. Um, my reason why I came here was actually to understand more about the Reformation, and I have learned a great deal from listening to you. But I think the attraction was to put it into context in modern day too. I think Salvatino said that, or Dev said that, one of the advantages would be to under, so that we could see it coming again, was to learn from history. What can we take away from this? I mean, can you put it in context for us today? You know, the church has got many of the uh, criticisms that have been outlined 500 years ago. Exactness of marriage and so on called into question. What can we learn from history that we can apply today in New York? It's a great question. Uh, the, the first thing that comes to mind, and this is just you know, speaking off the top of my head here, is that um, truth is perennial. Okay? And so, no matter what you do to shake our human nature, in some ways, our nature catches up with us. Okay? No matter what you do to try to deny man's capacity to know truth, the very fact that man has been made in such a way that he is capable of knowing truth is, is in some ways going to catch up with us, and we're going to, again, our, our active appetite for wisdom is going to be kindled. And therefore, I, I, would, I would hold here that, that um, now, let's not get too big for our bridges. Okay? There's a whole range of, 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 of ideas that have been, have been posited throughout human history. Some of which, with some kind of consistency, either by being affirmed by, by way of reason or by way of theology, have taken root, and these are things that we ought to study extensively before we critique them. And in some ways, in some ways, without trying to reinvent the wheel, stop trying to make gods of ourselves. Okay? And, and in some ways, attend to, uh, to, to truth itself. Truth itself as it's been revealed by God, and also as it's been uh, articulated throughout the history of, of, of Western civilization, all the way back to the Greeks, and even to the East, uh, and the extent to which uh, even ideas within it from, from, from the East could be seen as being perennial, true, and reconcilable. And so I think, I think there is an openness and, and a docility that we ought to have to truth itself. And if we remain open and, and, and cease to ideologically bend things to fit an agenda, okay, because of uh, it's convenient for us, given, given you know, even uh, to affirm certain doctrine, to be open in a very general way to the truth wherever it may lead. Okay, and that's a very difficult thing to say. I mean, even as a Catholic, we have to be open to that. Uh, and, and, but, but, but the confidence that the truth and God are ultimately the same thing, and wherever the truth will lead us will in some ways be to God himself. Okay, that's a very general way to respond to that. But I think that there's, there's something there. Because a, a lot of the modern heirs are simply man trying to reduce reality to his will. Man is simply trying to reduce reality uh, uh, to kind of what he wants. Okay? And, and a certain docility before the truth, I think, is essential. Thank you.